Good evening, listeners. It's November 18th, 2018, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 6 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. Really, it's a special episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. I'm Lori Lutz. And I'm Lillian Paget-Cobb. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all of the awesome things going on here at Oregon State, check out our blogs at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Francisco Guerrero Blano, who just defended his PhD dissertation in the Department of Forest Engineering Resources and Management and Water Resources Sciences under the direction of Jeff Hatton. Hi, Franco. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me for the third time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so if our listeners do not know, Franco was um, on the show as a guest for the first time, I think back in 2015. Yeah. And he was my very first in- interview on inspiration dissemination. And since then, we have had him on again to talk about his AAAS fellowship with CNN Espanol. And now for the third time, we're going to talk. And that was before he began the internship. Yeah. And so now we want all the details about how that internship was. So, Franco, will you start off by t- reminding our listeners uh, what the AAAS Fellowship was and how you were placed with CNN Español? Yeah, um, I remember what I said the first time. It's like I was part of this large experiment where they were taking scientists or, I mean, PhD, master's students or even postdocs from the labs and putting them into the newsrooms of... Um, a lot of media, Scientific American, National Geographic, and I, I got lucky and I, I got this uh, placement at CNN Español in Miami for 10 weeks. So we had to stop being a scientist, thinking like scientists, and then being reporters and actually interviewing other scientists about the, the, the things that they do. So what were some of the day-to-day responsibilities that you had working with CNN Español? Yeah, every day, I mean, I, I would work on, on, on different stories. In other placements or in other sites, I remember other fellows had uh, assignments. I didn't have assignments, so I had to find my own story. So I would like be reading um, scientific papers in journals, finding the authors. Then I would what we call that pitching the story, like proposing the story to to the editorial committee, and they will say like they were interested or not. And after that, you had to or what I was doing was like contacting the authors. Uh, scheduling interviews and also finding external sources and doing other interviews to, you know, to get kind of like a critical uh, feedback on the paper and then building the story and um, going through the editorial committee, a lot of fact checking and then copy editing. And finally, the story would go online. So it sounds like it's a pretty fast paced uh kind of system rather than maybe the work on your dissertation. So uh, how, from like start to finish, how long were you working on a story usually? How much lead time did you have to gather all that information? 
Yeah, that depend that was depending on the story. Um, at CNN, I had a little bit more of, of freedom, and sometimes because you know, I, I basically science stories are competing with a lot of other stories they are covering their news, uh, cable news um, channels. So they had other you know a lot of other priorities. So sometimes that would lo- would take like one week or two before you see the the entire story. So at some point it was slow paced. But in other cases, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention, I'll talk about this later. Be really fast, and really short uh, turnaround times. Yeah. So, uh, can you describe an experience that was very different from graduate school in that way, where you're totally a reporter in this in 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 that situation, and and you were exploring topics that were uh, maybe outside of natural sciences, or <laughs> yeah. something that you didn't expect? Yeah. I mean, when I was at the middle of the internship, I think uh, I was checking the date. And it was July 10th. Um, I was just in front of my computer looking for papers and trying to find my story. And then uh, I saw on the screens, because they have screens all over the place with breaking news, the, uh, these kids that were uh, trapped in this cave in Thailand for several days with their coach were just uh, getting out of the cave. And well, that was breaking news. Everybody was so excited. And I thought, like, wow, that's a really cool story. And then all of a sudden, I saw all these people running across the halls and like, okay, we need to prepare a TV special at three, 360 degrees coverage, which is basically media, Facebook Live, Twitter, um, articles, and also a TV special. So um, my job changed dramatically that week because uh, they was like, Franco, you need to help us. We need you to go out with us to do interviews and taking notes and also uh, writing an article about something that has to be related to the to what is happening with the kids, but it has to be completely different from whatever is being covered so far. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I don't know. And then, but at the same time, I was doing all these interviews and you know being outside and um, talking to experts. And one of the main topics that they were really interested about was how these kids uh, managed to survive for so long uh, without and, and dealing with that stress. And then I got like, okay, this this could be an idea to explore and to 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 find what is it, what science tells about these confined uh, settings when you are just like you know in those places, no no option to walk anywhere, and dealing with those experiences. And I found these articles um, describing experiments with astronauts as they were preparing the astronauts to go on the spatial uh, missions. And they was kind of like studying the effects of confinement in the emotional and the emotional responses to that. And then I was trying to make a match of that. And basically what they were saying is it doesn't matter how smart you were or how smart you are, even if you are an astronaut. It matters more how emotionally smart you are to go through that experience because there's a lot of stress going on. And you, I mean, if you are not uh, feeling okay with this person, it's not like you can walk away and you know manage your feelings in a different way. You have to be there and you have to handle that just in front of this other person. So how do you do that and uh, how all that affects your, your survival in that experience? So um, following that lead, I decided to talk with an expert in, in in mindfulness and meditation because it, it, it turns out that one of the strategies that the kids were using to handle all this stress while they were there uh, was meditating because their coach was a Buddhist monk or he used to be. And 
So I felt like, okay, maybe there's a component of this meditation, mindfulness thing that was helping them to deal with all this stress and emotional um, tension that were. And so I got to interview um, a professor from the university in Wisconsin at Madison. He's been studying mindfulness and meditation for the last 20 years after he met the Dalai Dalai Lama's sister. And he went to Tibet and and got really interested in, in how these things were helping, you know, like managing emotional stress. And um, um, he started talking about a lot of interesting things. Um, the interview went really long. Um, I had to kind of like select pieces and also the editorial team was saying like, this is important or not. But something that I was really interested that actually didn't uh, um, uh, come out in the interview was when he mentioned this idea about the, the mind being distributed in the body. I was like, uh, when we think about the mind, we normally think about the brain and the head, like all my mind is over here. But the guy was saying, no, the mind is distributed all over the body because every system is connected. Your immune system, your guts, everything is kind of like part of, of the emotional response that we define as mind. And this is a psychiatrist who's telling me that. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds like the concept of soul because it's, 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 it's the closest to that. And he said, like, yeah. I mean, scientifically, we can define it as such, but, well, it sounds like it. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is, was that, that was completely interesting, you know, because um, that was com- in, unexpected to me. Unexpectedly to find a, uh, a scientist who's done so much research with uh, mindfulness and psychology kind of talking about this concept that there's really not as much of a basis for more than just a, a feeling or kind of a, a speculation about how things are connected. Yeah, definitely. And so you were uh, take from this interview with him and from interviewing others and this story, you really, you had to find what that story was. That was your assignment was, we don't know what, what you're going to find. And we don't know what your article is going to be about, but it needs to be something good. And it needs to be something that no one else talked about yet. (laughs) Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, that, that is a very good, um, for those of us who are, you know, aspiring science communicators and work on science communication, trying to find the story in everything that you do and in what you're talking about and the people that you're mentoring and the people that you're leading to their own story, that's a, a good skill to have. Um, so, uh, was that a stressful process ever? Like being in charge of finding the story, being worried with the stress of not being able to do that? Or, or, uh, was it kind of more of a fun, creative exploration for you? I think it had a lot of different things, but the, I won't, I don't know if it was stressful, but it was different because I was in the middle of these two worlds. I, I remember that um, I was a scientist, but I, my job was to be a reporter. So somehow I had to kind of like pull myself out of that of that kind of like um, persona that I've been uh, through the grad school all these years. And like, oh no, and now I need to think as, as a reporter. And, um, and sometimes being a mediator between these um, different sources, because I was interested in, this, in telling a story, but one scientist was saying something and the other scientist was saying something different. And, um, and sometimes it could be difficult actually to communicate to other scientists. One of the things that they said, like, it was like, don't let them know that you are actually another scientist because it's going to be more complicated for, (laughs) for, for, I mean, they're going to go into this jargon thing and then they're going to feel like more comfortable, not not having to explain it. 
And I found in several cases really difficult to get a quote, this kind of like sentence that you want to put in the in the paper or in, in your in your story, like it's like uh, um, has a lot of you know meaning and but it's short and it's summarizing the entire research and is people are gonna understand it. And um, I found that as scientists we are really sometimes we can be really bad at that, you know, like and summarizing all that content in a single piece. And I guess for them, it was frustrating sometimes. It was for me as well, because I was to try, was trying to make a, a story really short, uh, but it was a really cool learning experience as well. And so I feel like as scientists, maybe we would um, think that it's a little bit risky to to do that. You know, you even coming on inspiration dissemination and being on the radio, you're trying to put you're trying to put all of your research and all of your time working on something into the most broad perspective to make it digestible for your audience. And that's some of the ownership that we ha- that we have to take as science scientists is to maybe not get into the nitty gritty, but to find the story. And uh, did you, so you, you did have a lot of trouble finding, or not a lot of trouble, but sometimes having trouble um, finding the one sentence to maybe sum up someone's years and years of research, right? Um, how did you reconcile that being a scientist yourself and knowing all the work that goes into what someone does, but then having the job of, of doing just that? Yeah, that... I think there are several ideas about how uh, um, um, sometimes like misconceptions about how things work. Um, one misconception that the media might have about us as scientists, like we overcomplicate everything, you know, like, oh, they want to make it like really difficult. And maybe sometimes the, a misconception that we might have about the media is like, oh, they want everything super simple and then um, they don't want the details. And I mean, their job is really simple, you know, just, just to kind of like capture people's attention and that's it. And I think being there, um, provide them actually with the opportunity to understand how I feel a, a, as a scientist, but also gave me the opportunity to see the complexity of the work that they have to do to put the story together. Because uh, for instance, when normally our job as scientists is related to writing papers and then uh, we edit papers, we edit written content and well, you know, sometimes we skim the paper and we highlight this content or this portion of the paper and this paragraph and that, that's it. To produce 10 seconds of TV, Oh my God, you need to, yeah, it's like like a lot because they have to have, uh, they have to analyze the reading part, which is the script. They also need to go through the audio. You can't skim audio. You have to sit and, you know, listen the whole thing. And also you have to process um, images. And also you can't skim images. You have to go through the entire record that you have and then finally select them a part of the story. So being there and being aware of these two, the complexity of the two worlds, I was trying to kind of like uh, be respectful and um, of the complexity of, of you know, entail, that, that was entailed in the work that each of these uh, uh, groups of people w- were doing. So um, at some point, um, I need to tell the scientists, well, this, or explain to the scientists, this is the way we're gonna try, we're gonna deal with your story. Um, do you feel comfortable with this part? And uh, even though I couldn't share the story with them, it, that's a, a, a golden rule in, in scientific journalism. You, can't, you cannot share the story 
with your sources, even if they're scientists. So there is kind of like a, you're writing your story over here, they don't know what you're saying and until the end, until they see the final product. And um, so that's tricky because we don't do that. As scientists, we have the peer review process, we share the story and then you get the feedback and the back and forth. That doesn't happen uh, with journalism. And um, and I'll tell you what I did afterwards to, to kind of like handle that part. I think we, we can touch on that later, yeah. Yeah, so Franco is referring to, so I went to an intro in intro to media course, actually, or workshop given here at KBVR and Orange Media Network uh, on campus of Oregon State University. And I guess that what you're referring to, that major rule, is that you're not, yeah, exactly, you're not supposed to disclose the story with your source. And the idea behind that is that if they get to change your story because for some reason they don't like how they're being portrayed or something like that, then they're kind of taking away your freedom of speech in that way. That was what I learned from the workshop. So it's nice that you um, that you talk about that and how difficult it is because you are like trying to explain someone's research and all of these complex methods without really explaining it. And then even if you do that, you can't really make sure that you've said the right thing. Yeah, so that's a good point because then my way around that, because uh, sometimes you don't have the time, you don't have the space to put all the methods, how they got the evidence, how they got the data. So what I decided to do was to summarize that using graphical abstracts. And then because the graphical abstract wasn't the story, I could discuss the graphical abstract with the scientists so to improve the accuracy of their representation. So they felt like, okay, yeah, that that explains what we're saying, This that explains how we're collecting the data. And I, I think that was a really cool way to collaborate with the scientists without compromising the integrity of the story. And at CNN, they, they were okay with that part. I mean, the, the graphics also went through the, the editorial process, but it, I think it was a cool way. Uh, I f they felt like, um, integrated part of the story without, you know, compromising, as I say, the, the integrity of, of the story I was writing. So, and, and, and that went, that went relatively well there. So with the graphical abstract, was that something that you created or was that materials, um, provided by your source? No, I created them. Okay. Yeah, I created them. I, I was reading the paper and finding which elements were actually requiring a more visual attention, particularly the data collection or the evidence, how actually they were proving the point they were making through in the paper. So uh, so I was creating that and then, um, you know, sending them, sending the graphical abstract to them and then they would send some comments back and okay. yeah, so refining it's, it. It's like an additional layer perhaps of um, conveying the message that you're trying to get across. It seems like a really useful sort of strategy to employ. Yeah, they didn't have that before at CNN, so they were a little bit like, oh, well, this is new to us. I mean, not the graphic thing in itself, but the graphic being part of these articles. But um, after they saw that, and I told them, like, I'm discussing this, this is our verified with the authors, they were feeling, okay, okay so let's try, and, and then they published them. So that's really remarkable. That's something that you went ahead and implemented at CNN Espanol that had not been done before. Yeah, I proposed that yeah, yeah. to them, and, and they were really cool about it. Oh, that's awesome. Do you think that they um, have plans to continue with that, perhaps? I, I think so, actually. <laughs> now that when I was posting, like, I graduated from, uh, from Oregon State and everything. I got some Twitters from um, one of my um, mentors there. She, she was Dr. Marisa Azaret. She's the anchor of one of the TV shows I was indirectly working for. 
And she said, like, yeah, we wish you keep collaborating with us. And then I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, that's that's a great opportunity. So probably yeah. that's going to keep happening. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Really cool. So I want to switch into talking a little bit about your dissertation or about your time here at Oregon State because you, you just defended recently. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, so you've got a lot of uh, interesting uh, knowledge now about that whole process. And I'm just wondering, just thinking about the me- you've told us a little bit about your challenges in media. Um, but did you find that the, that your media internship was uh, more or less difficult than finishing a dissertation? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, the thing is, like, I could finish the internship in, in 10 weeks. But the PhD took me five years and a little bit more. So it's like they are kind of like in different happening in different universes and time scales uh, and challenging you in different ways. I think knowing that it was just 10 weeks and it was an intense experience and I would just get through it was really helpful. But as I said, it was also challenging. And um, and the dissertation is, you know, it's like long run. It's just like resistance at the end. So you... Um, it challenges a lot of things um, that couldn't happen in such a uh, in yeah such a short uh, uh, time for the internship. So um, so obviously the the dissertation at the end you have your own critical eyes on that material. For writing science stories, you know that the paper already went through peer review. Then you're talking to the authors. Then you're talking to other sources. So more of the critical thinking that happens, obviously you have to do your part, but it's not like entirely on your shoulders. Your dissertation is basically your responsibility. Whatever you say there is, it is, it's you, you know? So it's like, it, there's more pressure. That's, I think the, the stakes can be a little bit higher in terms of professional development and, and your old self, you know, your old confidence on what you're doing. So. Very cool. And I'm going to, okay, so let's pretend that, well, we don't have to pretend you're Franco. So you're Franco, <laughs> CNN Espanol Franco. And you um, have a story to do on Franco, uh, Oregon State University, graduate student Franco, uh, or a story about um, some of the results that you found in your dissertation. And now it's you, CNN Espanol Franco's job to come up with that one eye catching, engaging statement. That sums up five years of your research (laughs) (laughs) and for the headline of your article, uh, what do you think it would be? Also, this is a terrifying question. I hope no one ever asks me. (laughs) Yeah, it it is because last time I had three minutes, but now it's like (laughs) um, something that I really like about my research is thinking about uh, forest memories. And that that our ecosystem, all these forests that surround us, they, they store memories about what happens, about their natural history, but in places that we normally don't think about, like in lake bottoms, and in ways that we normally don't think about, like in sediments. Um, what we found in my research is that these sedimentary memories are more vivid than we thought. Uh, because they were made of sediments, we thought about them like obscure, murky, like uh, really difficult to interpret. But then in my research, what I did was to combine a little bit of chemistry, math, and elements of computer math to um, figure out what, what was the content of these memories. And turns out that, as I said, because they are more vivid than, than, than we thought, there is a possibility for us to identify the differences between natural impacts versus human impacts. 
Um, and that's a question that been, has been open, or that's a problem that's been here surrounding us for the last 50 years. So now we're looking at the possibility of disentangling those two impacts that, are, that you know, are happening in our forests in the Pacific Northwest. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, and just to set the scene a little bit uh, for the listeners about that, I was at Franco's defense and hearing about your research for a while. I'm going to try and sum up maybe some of the results of your dissertation. So it's 50,000 years ago, and there is a huge landslide at a watershed, say, and it causes some logs to fall into the watershed. But really, it's just a big mess. It's all of this mud and small sediments and large sediments, and they eventually, you know, wash down to the mouth of the river, which lets say is a lake and now it's 50,000 years ahead and Franco goes down and can get a sediment core from that and then you use uh, chemistry and other technology to decipher those particles and put a timestamp on them and then try to associate the size of the particle with the event that maybe happened there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, our temporal scale was the last 1500 years and the thing that we try differently here is like thinking about these sediments, about hard drives. So normally people understand these sediments in different ways, but I started looking at them, like, as you said, using the grain sizes and thinking like, um, what if the sediments are storing information by using different combinations of grain sizes in the same way that computer use different combinations of zeros and ones? What if we use the math of computer language to decipher those memories? And yeah, it seems like it's working. And that one of the very interesting things that you found is some of those uh, very historical storms or landslides are had, you know, they had a large disruptive effect on the environment, but the signal from modern day logging looks kind of the same. And it seems to imply that maybe modern day logging is having a larger disturbance than what we previously thought. Yeah, um, we... For the last 50 years since we, we've been studying the impact of logging, we, because we're studying sediments and the way that a forest release sediments is um, triggered by a lot of factors like a landslide or a storm, something that is hard to distinguish. Okay, is this just a result of the storm or is something else that was happening in that land? So it's been kind of like tricky to disentangle those two things. But looking at 1,500 years of history, when you actually had the opportunity to have even several earthquakes, and you see the signature of those earthquakes and all their storms and landslides, you know, and then you have 50 years of human activities, and you see that the um, the signature, the, the structure of those sediments or the impacts are comparable, that was really, like, oh, you know, surprising. Like, it's like... How can you reconcile those two pieces of evidence? But they were there. It's like, yeah, we our impacts are really can be really strong. So how do you think um, an impact like that or finding a finding that you have uh, presented that logging, modern logging is having, you know, larger disturbance than maybe the companies have intended? What what do you think happens and what's the thought that the that environmentalists around have? Yeah, that's that's a really controversial point because uh, uh, I mean we have logging, we have uh, road construction, but in the in the recent, I mean after the seventies, we also have best management practices. So um, it's hard to go and paint everybody, you know, with with a black and white, and then they've been doing something wrong, and it's, it's 
a better understanding of how this watershed function and perhaps orienting and guiding, you know, management practices that can even reduce the, the impacts of, of our activities. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, we do need these resources. We do need timber. We do need paper. It's like we can just say, like, okay, let's do nothing about it. But um, somehow we haven't had the tools to disentangle and to recognize the magnitude of the effects. Now, if we are developing those tools, I'm pretty sure uh, everybody's going to start being on board. What can we do better? What can we do to improve the, the situation? So I think um, uh, we can be a little bit optimistic about um, environmentalists and other people that low in companies like, OK, how can we work around this together and, you know, um, reduce the potential impacts that we have? Uh, you know, newer approaches to, to detect. Yeah, very good. All right, so I have one more question and then we'll flip it over to Lori and Lily to ask you some like more broader questions about graduate school. But uh, so I'm gonna give, ask you the same question that I asked before where I said, well, what's the one statement that you have about your dissertation that encapsulates that or that's the, the headline for your dissertation? Could you come up with um, one statement that uh, is the headline for your AAAS <laughs> internship with CNN Espanol? Well, I, I can't promise it's going to be a statement. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but um, I remember from day one, they were always asking all the fellows, um, I mean, uh, at the AAAS, the coordinators of the fellowship, what do you want to do? Are you are you going to stay as a science uh, journalism journalist or are you going to go back to the bench, meaning the lab, right? <laughs> like, are you going to be a scientist again and just, just going to forget about this? And... Um, and at the end of those 10 weeks at CNN, I felt like I'm going to go back to the bench, but not to sit it out, but to stand on top and tell other scientists that we need to care more about what people think about science, but also to tell people that we, do need, we need to care about what other scientists are doing. Because at the end of the day, we all want the same thing, right? We all want to find a path to a better world. We all want a better life. So it's, it's just a thing about how we can do it together. So um, I think that was a really cool opportunity that I had been at CNN, uh, finding my own call in terms of what I want to do as, in terms of, as a science communicator. That doesn't mean that I have to be a 100% science journalist. Um, I still can be a scientist, and I, I, I think I still can talk about science communication in these other venues, so um, that was kind of like my 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 kind of like wrap up from from that experience. Definitely, I think that that is very important that we can't you know be wearing our scientist hat one day and then a few weeks when we finally have results wear our science communication hat. Yeah, because as you work and also I know that as you work on your science, you know the story is changing, and you can if if you are never wearing your science communication hat, you might miss it. Definitely. I mean, finding we, we some somebody said that we are um, story and storyteller animals or something like that. That storytelling is ingrained in our brains, and we sometimes we try to separate that part when we are doing science because it sounds like fantasy. Like story is kind of like something related to fantasy, but no science stories are stories. And um, when we look at them in that way, sometimes our questions get refined. We find better better ways to answer those questions, and all as obviously better ways to communicate those answers to the to the broader audience. So, 
Um, this actually really relates to another special episode that Lily and I did a couple weeks ago. And for folks at OSU, um, it's important to know that you don't have to be a scientist and like an expert journalist either. Like there are resources available for you to share that science um, from the Benton shop, as you say, with like the OSU press offices, for example. Um, so there are resources available. And so if you are the scientist doing that work, it's important to um, know um, who those folks are that can help get um, your research out there. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned that you just finished up your defense. And um, so is, for those of us <laughs> that are still in graduate school and um, or for folks that are interested in going to graduate school, what is, I'm curious to know, what is something that happened in your experience that was unexpected, perhaps? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. But at, some, at the same time, it's a little bit tricky because I think that question is related to the expectation that as we you know, gather more information, we can be fully prepared to embrace experience and go through it and like, yeah, get it done. And and it might be different also depending on, on if you're a master's student or a PhD student. So I'm, what I'm going to say about now is from my perspective as a PhD student. And what I mean about not having all the, all the items on the list before you go through is because somehow you need to leave some room for the unexpected. Um, there is a lot of learning that comes from that kind of element of surprise. And that's kind of that surprising period or unexpected period of high uncertainty period is gonna happen at a certain point along the PhD. I don't know uh, when, it when it starts, but I know when it ends, and it ends with your defense. <laughs> so before that, there's gonna be a lot of, um, you're, you're gonna feel really vulnerable. There's going to be a phase on that period that you're going to feel really vulnerable, exposed, not only to the criticism and the judgment of your committee members or your peers, but most importantly, to your own judgment. And being aware that that's is, that might happen to you, that that's a normal phase of any creative process, uh, and you need to go through it to get to the other side, knowing that part is important. But it seems that there is no way to prepare for that. I mean, I can tell you that, I can, I'm can. i telling you this right now, but you have to go through it to, you know, maybe I, hopefully you will remember these words when you're in the middle of the process. Right now they might sound like, ah, maybe, it, no, I, I think I can, I, I get it. I can be prepared. I can collect all my information. I'll, I'll, I'll have all my papers ready, all my chapters, but that part is gonna happen. And I think the most important part is just to, be prepared for the unexpected, you know, be ready to take it, to embrace it and go through it and uh, be confident that you're going to you're going to go through it and you're going to get to the other side. And also remembering that you need um, a support system to, to help you to go through that phase and taking care of that support system, your friends, uh, your partners, your advisor, your committee members, all those people um, are going to be extremely essential around you but at the end of the day it's something that you're gonna have to live by yourself so just i think like being prepared for that phase knowing that it's going to happen and um, that you just need to go through it so now that you're at the end of your time here at osu are you do you have plans for your next endeavor what are you looking at next are you and i guess part of that is um sort of are you 
taking anything away from your experience at CNN Espanol, moving that with you into the future with whatever you're doing scientifically? You know, definitely. I mean, uh, in two weeks, I'm going to be starting a postdoc in the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, one of the things that they were really interested was um, in my experience as a science communicator because it's a science policy fellowship. So I'm going to be working in developing um, tools to predict water quality um, in the in the area of Wisconsin. But at the same time, we need to develop strategies to communicate those uh, our findings to uh, stakeholders and decision makers. So it's gonna it's it's gonna be a really cool opportunity to put together this you know scientific technical. Um, training that I got here as part of my PhD, but at the same time, the, the ability to talk to people outside of my field, and sometimes that means being stepping outside of your comfort zone and, you know, trying to build something with them in yeah. terms of water quality in this case. So that's really pretty amazing that it sounds like you're able to integrate both of those interests in your background with the science communication as well as the science, this science practice. And um, that's uh, really interesting that I remembered. <laughs> so for people, um, you know, there's sort of this, this thought that can you do both? And it's almost like, well, doing science journalism or science practice, and it's actually possible to integrate them. Yeah, but, and, and that's a good point because um, in the practice, I mean, in the, in, when you're a science reporter, you get access uh, to a lot of resources that you don't have access being a scientist, like the pre-release uh, notifications from the scientific magazines and journals. Once you go back and you're a scientist again, you don't have access to those things. So you, you can work on producing science news. So that part probably is going to go away. But Lori was saying something really cool, which is within the universities, you have the opportunity to, you know, keep exercising or keep applying these um, uh, skills in terms of science communication. And there are also other venues. I, I think there is something called the conversation where you as a scientist can, you know, I want to explain, I want to want to write something about this topic and you can, you know, do some kind of more of the science communication. So in my case, I'm integrating it in the sense that like I'm applying my skills and using them to kind of like... Um, uh, communicate science to a broader audience, but if your if your goal is to be a science journalism, I think is a science journalist. Um, probably you need to kind of like move more towards that part. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, Franco, thank you so much for coming on the air with us again for the third time. I I really enjoyed being able to interview you and kind of see the progression of of your time starting out as like a graduate student, but then moving into more science communication roles. And uh, you're a good example for us here at Inspiration Dissemination. Oh, thank you for having me. And, and um, as I told you, I really admire the work that you're doing, keeping this space open to all the grad students, because it's a great opportunity for us to actually exercise our skills as science communicators and getting more motivated about the work that we're doing here at OSU. Thank you. And uh, yeah, this is Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis. And we'll be right back at 7 p.m. with an interview from Katerina Lunde. She's from the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology. All right. Thank you.